I invite you to turn to the first of three readings that we have this morning. These are all connected to our text from Galatians chapter 2. First reading comes from Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Acts chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. Something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who was called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. We go on to um, Acts chapter 15. We read that passage two weeks ago as well. We're going to read it again to refresh our memories. Acts 15, the verses 1 through 11. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And we will leave it at that, and then we move on to Galatians 2. Galatians 2, we're going to read the verses 11 through 21. But when Cephas, that's the Aramaic name of Peter, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, came he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For, for through the law I die to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And this morning, our text will be the verses 11 through 14, which we just read together. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. We'll be going through it word by word again. <coughs> Excuse me. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever been in a socially awkward situation? Maybe you were at a family dinner and two of your uncles got into a heated discussion about some social or political issue. Maybe you didn't feel it was really your place to say something, so you just kind of shrank back and watched the train wreck unfold. Or maybe someone that you don't know very well accused you 
of being insensitive, uninformed, maybe even disloyal to the things that you believe. Everybody turned to look at you to see how you would react, and you felt defensive. It's not a nice situation to be in. It's even worse when you don't know what to do or to say in response. These can be very awkward situations, very awkward conversations to have with people. Imagine then how awkward the scenario described in our text must have been. We don't expect our church leaders to confront each other like this. But that's what happened in our text. On the one side you have Peter, Barnabas, and their fellow Jews. On the other side you have Paul, and in between are the Gentile converts. The Gentiles being people from a heathen background who who are not Jewish. Now that's a socially awkward situation. But what made it much worse was that it wasn't just people's opinions or feelings that were at stake here, but it was actually the gospel that was at stake. The true gospel. The true gospel which says that God is gracious beyond anything that we could ever imagine. The true gospel that you are saved by grace and by grace alone. Consider again the definition of the gospel laid out in the first passage that we studied, the verses 1 verses 1 through 5. Must have been, what, six weeks ago or so by now? The true gospel we saw is about deliverance. Deliverance from the judgment of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not just fell, but fall. We do it every day. The Bible calls that sin. All human beings deserve God's judgment for that. But the gospel says you are delivered from that. You are delivered through faith in Jesus Christ. You are delivered because he died instead of sinners. That was a work of God. So the true gospel is always about deliverance. It's about deliverance by the work of God, from the judgment of God, for the glory of God. And Peter is calling that gospel into question by his behavior here. He's making it look like faith was not enough, like the work of God and Christ was not enough. Through his behavior, he was suggesting to these people that, there's, that you need to add a few things to, to be saved. But the problem is as soon as you add something to grace, it stops being grace. As soon as you add something to the gospel, it stops being good news. Then it becomes just like every other religion where you ultimately have to satisfy a moody and critical God. And you're never completely sure where you stand with him. So the Apostle Paul had a public conflict with Peter over this, but he wasn't afraid of the conflict itself. It was worth it. He wasn't afraid because the true gospel is God's gospel. It is strong. It can outlast the sorts of differences that led to this dispute. It can survive this kind of conflict. And that's, that was true for him and it's true for us as well. And so that will be our approach to the text this morning. That you can live according to the truth of the gospel because it is strong. It is stronger than rejection and it is stronger than conflict. So let's set the scene together for, for a bit. Paul and Barnabas came back to Antioch from their first missionary trip. You can read about that in Acts 14, the verses 24 to 28. 
And at some point, Peter must have come to Antioch as well. Antioch, of course, was a city in the southern part of what is now Turkey. Peter must have come there. Don't forget that uh, he had a reason to be on the road. He'd escaped from, from Herod in Acts 12 or 17. And although it's not necessarily the case that he went to Antioch, he must have come there at some point and then left again before the Jerusalem council took place because at the Jerusalem council, he apparently is back in Jerusalem again. So it's possible that he um, came to Antioch because uh, Herod was after him. Antioch was far away. He came to Antioch and then uh, left um, after the first two verses that are described in Acts 15. These men came down from, from James. He had his conflict with Paul. Then he left, went back to Jerusalem, and later on Paul follows him. And the rest of Acts 15 talks about that. Which means that the men from James described in our text must be the same as the men from Judea in, the, in Acts 15 verse 1. If you add up all of the, the facts in the, in the passages we looked at, that's what you end up with. Antioch was a large city by the standards of those days. A city of about half a million. That's even larger than Canberra. And about uh, somewhere over 10%, up to say about 10%, 65,000 of these people were Jews from the same ethnic background as Peter. Many would have been watching very closely what was going on in this church that, um, that Peter was, was at, trying to work out what's going on. You know, these were the early years of the Christian church, and it wasn't immediately clear to the Jews how they were supposed to relate to the Gentiles. You have all these Gentiles that are starting to come in in large numbers, and these Jewish people um, are wondering, well, how do we deal with this? And it was especially obvious when it came to table fellowship. If you've spent any time in the first five books of the Bible, then you're probably aware that there were numerous rules pertaining to clean and unclean foods. And the Gentiles didn't keep any of these rules. So many Jews believed that that meant that you could not eat with Gentiles at all. That was the first thing, remember, that the circumcision party said to Peter when he came back from the home of Cornelius. We read that in Acts 11. He says, look, you, how, how could you do this? You went and you ate with these people. What were you thinking? So the separation between Jew and Gentile on this point of table fellowship represented the separation between the people of God and the rest of the world. So this separation is an important thing to them, and they feel you know, potentially threatened when it gets breached. But the gospel is that this separation has been overcome in Christ. Through faith in Christ, anyone can belong to God, no matter who you are. Because he takes away the source of all of our moral pollution. And the source of your moral pollution is not what you eat. It's sin. And because he's done that, everything else that represents that falls away including this division and table fellowship. So it was a beautiful thing to eat together for these Jews and Gentiles. Every time that Peter and the other Jewish Christians and, and uh, the Gentiles were eating together, they were saying that the Gentiles and the Jews shared together in the blessing of knowing God. It was like a professional faith every time that you sit down at the table together. They were sharing together in the blessing of the coming kingdom, sharing in the blessing pronounced by their host, at the beginning of the meal. And all of that fell to pieces when certain men came from James, like it says in, in our text. 
Now, we should be fair to James here. This um, doesn't mean necessarily that, um, that he endorsed everything that they said. He um, probably didn't instruct them to say this. In Acts 15 verse 24, he specifically says, we did not give instructions to these people. But James was devout, right? He was a, a profoundly religious man. He was known for that. These people were on some level connected with him. So, so they have a certain amount of credibility. And they, they have a bit of a nickname here, the circumcision party. A one-issue party. The circumcision party. That, that it's kind of a shorthand form of referring to, to what they're about. They were known for saying the kind of thing that we encounter in Acts 15. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You know, this wall is here. Keep it that way. And so these people come from Antioch. And, and Peter, what does he do? He slowly starts to shrink into the background. It's not even clear from our text whether, whether they actually spoke personally to Peter or not. Maybe they didn't. But they certainly... He certainly knew what they thought. He would have, it was obvious to him what they thought. And so he slowly shrank into the background. And verse 12 indicates that it's a, it was a type of a, a two-step process. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when, he came, when they came, he drew back. He starts to shrink back and he separated himself. First he begins to draw back, eventually he separates himself altogether and he does this kind of, you know, slowly, discreetly, hoping that nobody will notice him. But he should have known better. This was the same man, we, we read his words in Acts 11. He he'd said, if God then gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? God had shown him that and here he is denying the very thing that God had taught him. He knew better than that. There's no indication that he changed his mind anywhere. Instead, he was behaving in a way that wasn't consistent with what he believed. Paul called it what it is, hypocrisy. This was sin. He was going against something that, 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 that he knew was right. Think about how socially awkward this would have been. Peter, Paul's beloved colleague. Paul had enjoyed Peter's hospitality on his first trip to Jerusalem. They spent 15 days together talking about all these really uh, personal matters of faith. You know, you connect with people when you do things like that. They probably had a good time together. And now Paul is calling Peter a hypocrite in public. And at that point, he doesn't care what it does to their relationship. Because Peter is putting the gospel in great danger. The gospel has to come first. You know, what's interesting, if you read between the lines, underneath this whole conflict is fear, this primal fear. Paul writes about that in, in verse 12 of our text. He says that Peter feared the circumcision party. He was motivated by fear, that's what it says. But the question is, what kind of fear? Not all kinds of fear are the same, right? So if we give Peter the benefit of the doubt, it may have been that he didn't want to compromise his witness to the other Jews. You remember we saw at the beginning that there were some, um, by some estimates, up to 65,000 Jews living 
in Antioch at the time. And if Peter, who's also Jewish, gets the reputation of ignoring the ritual laws of Judaism, well, there goes his witness to the Jews. They're, they're going to, to look at him as a, a, a person who has abandoned the faith. They won't listen to him. A similar accusation was later leveled at Paul in Acts 21, verse 28. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility that something like this could happen. But it's also possible that he was going through a darker and more personal kind of fear, wanting to appear right in the eyes of God or before God in the eyes of his fellow Jews. The text doesn't tell us what kind of fear it was. It just says he was afraid, afraid of rejection anyway. But would we really have done any differently? It's hard, difficult, painful to have your motives questioned by others. Sometimes it's tempting to live for what impresses other people. We can all be vulnerable to that on some level. There are even people who have spent the whole life living just to maintain a certain appearance before other people. Maybe you're one of them. Maybe you even feel bitter and resentful about it. You feel like you're living a lie, but you can't think of any other way to do it. But a text suggests that this is not what true faith is about. True faith is not about maintaining appearances. It's not about satisfying other people. It's about being saved by the grace of God, from the wrath of God, for the glory of God. And that gospel will always stand on its own regardless of what other people might think of you. That gospel is stronger than rejection. You can build your life on it. And when you do, you become strong in your faith as well. And over time, you start to care less about what other people think. The alternative is hypocrisy, to live something that you don't really believe. The problem with hypocrisy is that it's never really a, a, a private thing. I can feel that way in the beginning, but it always has consequences for other people. We can lead others astray through the power of our own hypocrisy. That's what happened to Barnabas. You can sense Paul's anguish coming through in verse 13. Verse 13, even the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas. Imagine the pain. Barnabas, the one who first introduced Paul to the other disciples. Barnabas, the one who went to Tarsus to look for Saul. In a day and age when they didn't have smartphones or GPS or anything like that. So when you went looking for someone, you actually went looking for them in a big city. You had to find them. And then he did that and he brought them back. He brought them to Antioch. They worked together for a long time. They went on this mission trip together. They encountered persecution together. They encountered adversity together. They did all this stuff together in faith and and here this brotherhood is just broken. Even Barnabas was led astray. And it doesn't really, in our minds, make, make sense, does it? You look at Barnabas, you look at Peter the way he was in Acts 11, you look at Peter the way he was in Acts 15, you get this little snippet in between, and you think, like, are we even talking about the same people? We, we, we like our narratives to be simple, don't we? want it to be black and white. 
the good guys, the bad guys, straightforward, simple plot. But the life of faith is more complex than that. People are more complex than that. Think of the words of the Catechism in Lord's Day 44. Even the holiest have only what? Even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. So we should remember that. We should be patient with each other. When you see your brother, your sister fall into sin, maybe even live hypocritically, you can point it out to them, but you need to be patient with them. Remember the words of Martin Luther. He, he once said, if Peter fell, I too may fall. If he stood up again, so can I. We should also remember that we can't earn God's favor with our righteousness. Even if Peter had held on to the gospel, even if he had not caved into fear, even if he had made a stand for the right thing, he would still be saved by God's grace and by God's grace alone. You don't earn God's favor by behaving in a particular way. Rather, we grow to understand the gospel more and more deeply over time. We live according to the truth of the gospel. We discover how strong the gospel really is, and then our behavior changes in response to that. Through the renewal that God works in us through his Holy Spirit, then we're able to face rejection, we're able to overcome it. And that comes as a result of faith. That doesn't come before faith. That comes as a result of being accepted by God. That's not how we are accepted by God. Grace always comes first. God is patient with us, as he was with Peter. I mean, this is not the first time that Peter has compromised, has he? You, you, if you know your New Testament, you know the Gospels, you know the other times when Peter was weak. And here he is again. And yet God didn't disqualify Peter from being an apostle. He, he corrects him very painfully, very publicly, but he doesn't disqualify him. He continues working with him. And that's really the gospel in action as well. This is God's forgiveness. This is God's rebuke through Paul. This is God taking Peter, shaking him, putting him back on his feet, guiding him along. That's the gospel too. Peter was not the only one who had to deal with rejection. Think about how these Gentiles would have felt. Look at it from their perspective. They'd left their Greco-Roman religion. You need to really understand what a big thing this is. Greco-Roman religion was, was not just a religious, but a very powerful social, cultural force. They left that all behind. They were isolated from some very important parts of their culture. There were business consequences because a lot of these um, um, fellowship dinners with uh, business people were held in these heathen temples with heathen food being served to them. They'd left all of that behind. They, they knew that they weren't Jewish, so they don't even have a fully functioning community to go to. They're kind of stuck in the middle. They'd taken this huge risk by becoming Christians, but the gospel, they saw the gospel and it made it all worthwhile. And now even that is being taken away from them. Peter is moving the goalposts, so to speak. And they know who he is, like he's an influential person. He's leading the other Jews astray. The whole thing is falling apart. 
Worst of all, Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And, and that's what, what Paul says here specifically. I saw, verse 14, that the conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that you're saved by the work of God, from the judgment of God, for the glory of God. And by his actions, Peter is preaching a different gospel. One commentator put it so well that I'm going to quote him verbatim. He said, quote, Peter's act sends the signal that Gentiles in Christ are not truly and fully cleansed from sin in Christ, that they remain morally stained and must be avoided, and that they can finally remove that stain only by themselves taking on Jewish customs. End quote. They remain morally stained and must be avoided, and they can only remove that stain themselves by taking on Jewish customs. Can you believe that? Isn't this the most disappointing thing that, that you've read in this letter so far? That, that Peter actually was so afraid of rejection that he was willing to pretend that these other people, his brothers and sisters in Christ, were less morally pure than him. But have we ever done this ourselves? Have we ever fully accepted other believers only if they become exactly the same as us? When a fellow believer visits us, especially one from a, a different church background, maybe even a different ethnic background, different social economic background, do we, do we portray an aura of exclusion? Do we leave them standing on their own after the worship service is over? Do we make them feel out of place maybe by commenting on the differences between us when we do take the time to talk to them? You know, our, our, na our natural inclination is towards tribalism, isn't it? That's to expect other people to become like us before we talk to them. But the gospel encourages us to do the opposite. As Paul later wrote in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 20, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. In other words, Paul became like Jewish people in their behavior in order as much as possible to, to, to win them to the gospel. Now you might wonder, hold on a minute. Is he not here admitting that he did exactly the same thing that he told Peter not to do? So who's the hypocrite now? But what Paul did here was different. He was accommodating Jews only on secondary issues. For instance, when he took Timothy along, he circumcised him because not doing so would have made it impossible for Timothy to even set foot in a synagogue. That's not that he was suggesting that Timothy couldn't be saved if he, was, if he wasn't circumcised. That wasn't the issue. The issue was that people knew that his, Timothy's father was a Greek. That means everybody knows He's not circumcised. That means that he won't even be allowed to set foot in a synagogue. That means he cannot preach the gospel there. So this was an accommodation to Jews so that he would be able to preach the true gospel of God's grace to them, which is very different from what Peter is doing in our text. If you believe the true gospel, God has already separated you. He has already made you his own. He did it by grace. He did it legally through baptism, as he did this morning with little Pearl Ada Vendune. And, and he did it to us too. 
And if you grow up and you respond to that in faith, then you are organically joined to Christ as well. You belong to him completely. There are no second-class Christians ever, anywhere. You cannot half belong to Christ and half not belong to him. If you belong to him, you belong to him completely. And there's security in that. You can depend on him. You can live for him. It's safe to live according to the truth of the gospel because the gospel is strong, stronger than rejection, stronger than conflict as well. When I look at that next. Conflict is a very uncomfortable thing to witness. But there is such a thing as healthy conflict in a church, believe it or not. There can be healthy conflict in a church. The classic example, of course, is Martin Luther, the 16th century ex-monk and theologian who stood up to the church of his day for the truth of the gospel. Um, Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher who stood up to the men of his denomination when they were involved in the downgrade controversy. We know, probably a lot of us know a bit about Luther, but you might not know much about Spurgeon. But um, towards the end of his life, he was really disappointed because many men in his denomination um, were importing liberal theology. So what that means is that these people were denying that Scripture was infallible, they were denying that Jesus' death was a substitute for ours. They were denying that there is a hell. They were saying everybody will be saved, regardless of whether they're a Christian or not. Something called universalism. And, and Spurgeon, in uh, the twilight days of his, his life, he was fighting this stuff. He had to take a stand for it. It was really difficult for him. That was called the downgrade controversy. Or what about more recently, the many men and women in our former sister churches in the Netherlands who questioned the practices that were creeping into the church? It was hard for them. If you followed any of that in the last, say, five, even five or ten years, you see the sorts of interactions that were had on a, a more personal level. It was, it was hard. There was conflict. It was very difficult for them, but many of them stuck it out for the love of the church. They didn't like conflict, but they felt they had to take a stand. And that kind of conflict is necessary. Conflict can be necessary, but so many conflicts in the church are not. So many conflicts are over silly, peripheral issues that have nothing to do with the gospel, despite what anyone might say. Consider again the definition of the gospel that was laid out in the first passage that we studied. The gospel is that in Christ you are saved by the work of God, from the judgment of God, for the glory of God. How many of the things that we collectively, also as free reformed people, argue about have nothing to do with that? Sometimes conflict arises because people have strong opinions, but they don't really know what they're talking about. I saw that firsthand once. Years ago, I was in the audience at a presentation delivered at one of our sister churches by one of the professors from the Canadian Reformed Theological Seminary. He was delivering a speech 
can't remember what it was about anymore. It might actually, ironically, have had something to do with Reformation Day. But anyways, after the speech, a congregation member stood up from the audience and he said something along the lines of, when you became a professor, you vowed to teach what the Bible teaches as it's summarized in the confessions, did you not? How come you're breaking your vow? Well, maybe he saw himself as a kind of a Paul figure who was rebuking Peter. The only problem was that it was very clear in context that he had completely misunderstood the point, the specific point that he was commenting on. He thought that the professor had said the opposite of what he had actually said. So the professor quietly, in a very neutral voice, um, set the record straight, and the man sat down again. It would have been so much better if this brother had first verified that he had a complete set of facts instead of assuming that he understood the whole situation and then going in with both guns blazing. But even if he'd had all of his facts straight, the tone of the question was still wrong. The way that he worded the question already assumed that the professor was guilty. And simply in asking that question in that way, he already cast a shadow on the professor's character. This is not how you deal with each other in church. This is not how it's done. The case in our text was different. The issue was public. It was obvious. It was not open to misunderstanding. Paul saw what was going on. He understood the implications immediately, which is why he reacted the way that he did. And he also reacted in his capacity as an office bearer. A public sin by an office bearer calls for a public rebuke. First Timothy 5 verse 20 talks about that as well. So how did Peter respond to this rebuke? Paul doesn't tell us. Peter doesn't speak at all in this passage. Did you notice that? He just fades away into the background. He becomes mute. And maybe that indicates that he had nothing to say. It may also mean that he realized that Paul was right. Later on in Acts 15, we see him take the same position as Paul did. He speaks up in favor of, of, of the true gospel. But, but in a way, the conclusion to the story is not really relevant because Paul is not writing to the people in Antioch. He's writing to the Galatians. His point was not to write history, but to illustrate a theological point about the gospel. He wants them to know you can live according to the gospel. It's strong. Stronger than rejection, stronger than conflict. So strong that in the end, Peter and Paul were able to continue working as apostles and colleagues. Conflict is a strange thing. We should hate conflict in the church. But at the same time, we should also not be afraid of true, healthy conflict. Think about what happened when this issue was resolved in a Christian manner. The truth of the gospel was preserved. The purity of the gospel was maintained. Many benefits. But a church that does not resolve conflict is a church that is sabotaging the truth of the gospel. The gospel says, in Christ you are saved by the work of God, from the judgment of God. For the glory of God, unresolved conflict derails all of that. It splits the church into camps. It pits people against each other. It divides the people that Jesus died to unite. It therefore takes away from the glory that God deserves. Listen carefully. 
if there is an unresolved conflict with another church member, including family, and if it's unresolved because of you, you are living in a state of sin. It doesn't matter what else you might say. You are living in a state of sin. Go and deal with it. Unresolved conflict has no place in the church. It's like the story of the man who was walking through his house at night with the lights off. He didn't want to wake anyone up. As a result, he didn't see that the glass sliding door was closed and he walked straight through it. He cut himself very badly. After that, everyone was awake. But a few years later, he was taking a shower and scrubbing himself, and suddenly a piece of glass came out of his leg. It had been there for all of those years, but the the wound had grown shut over the glass until finally it came out. That's what unresolved conflict and unresolved issues are like in church. It never goes away, it just grows over, it will come back again eventually, and it will cut its way through the church. Deal with it now. It can be resolved. The gospel is stronger than your conflict. If you both hold on to the gospel, you will be able to resolve your conflict. You can live according to the truth of the gospel because it is strong. That's worth a little bit of discomfort. And when you work through these issues, you will become stronger as well. And you'll be so encouraged because you'll see how strong the gospel really is, stronger than the fear of rejection, stronger than your conflict, strong enough to build your life on, strong enough to die for, because it's not your gospel. It's God's gospel. He preserved it. He continues to preserve it. He continues to preserve it today. He will preserve you. You're calling us to be faithful. So let's do that. Let's be faithful. Let's live according to the truth of the gospel together. And may the Lord bless us as we do so. Amen.